Are we witnessing the end of legacy admissions? We'll take stock of a new federal investigation as well as a torrent of criticism of the practice. Then, Congress held some head-turning hearings on UFOs. Do we have confirmation of extraterrestrial life? And then finally, we'll unpack some new counterintuitive data about how parents view their public schools. Are parents actually more satisfied with their options than we've previously assumed? All of this on The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, okay. Legacy admissions. You have written about it. We've done a ton of stuff at the branch about it. And we'll link to this long uh, narrative episode we did in the fall about legacy admissions. Seems like this is what everybody wants to talk about now. And the education department got in on the mix. So the education department's office of civil rights has opened a civil rights investigation into Harvard's legacy admissions policy. And this seems spurred by a series of liberal advocacy groups who are essentially saying that uh, legacy preferences hurt applicants of color. And this is a fascinating spin on it. Uh, interesting that they're they're using race, I think, here. I think in part because they want to tie it to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which we actually talked about on Tuesday, which is the part of the Civil Rights Act that applies to institutions that receive federal funds, says they can't discriminate on the basis of race. There's some irony in that. But, Ricky, this is a bipartisan effort. So Tim Scott and AOC and Neil Gorsuch, Jeff Merkley, Jamal Bowman, they've all gotten in on the mix and all sound very similar when they're talking about legacy admissions. Does this give you a hope that we'll see reform of this practice? Yeah. Although, I mean, I, I don't really see the the racial argument being all that persuasive. I think it just doesn't benefit a large swath of Americans who aren't legacy regardless of their racial background. But I do think that there's, I mean, I have more hope in the fact that there are schools that are overturning this practice themselves mm-hmm. on their own. Um, Amherst, John, John Hopkins, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Like, I mean, I think this is the future. I've, I've said as much for a while. I mean, I, it's too bad to me that it had to be like a reactionary response because this has always been unjust. And I, I, don't understand why the Supreme court ruling was the impetus to address this. This is, always been a problem. But at the very least, I think college admissions will get more fair and equitable. It's hard to find an issue that more people agree on than this. 75% of people surveyed uh, in the Pew, uh, Pew Research poll last year uh, said that legacy preferences should not be a factor in college admissions. I imagine that number could be even higher now, given all the attention that's been paid to it. Yeah, I imagine too. It almost makes me want to find a reason for legacy practices. I'm like, well, how is it possible that there's a consensus, uh, such a strong consensus around this? And I think there is some cold water on the data itself, but obviously, I mean, I'm not, I, I think this is a horrific practice. And I think one piece of evidence for how horrific it is, is this at the Harvard trial, uh, the plaintiffs introduced evidence of what's called the LOP, L-O-P. And essentially what this means in practice at Harvard is that applicants who are on the cusp of admission or rejection are placed on a list, I guess this is called the LOP, that contains only four pieces of information. So this is as reductive as it gets when you're talking about picking winners and losers. The four pieces of information you think, oh, what are these four pieces of information they're narrowing down students on? Is it their academic achievement? Is it their extracurriculars? Mostly no. So the four things they're looking at are legacy status, 
whether they're recruited athlete, whether they're on financial aid, and their race. That's what the colleges are looking at or Harvard's looking at uh, in the final analysis. And so basically they're saying your legacy admissions, your legacy status is as important as um, whether you come from a poor background or not. Uh, and actually study like after, you know, pretty deep analysis, which we'll go into, it seems like they're even weighting one of those more than others, which is the legacy status. So I don't know. Uh, I've been saying this forever. I don't know. I mean, it's about time. My God. Well, okay. Even more eye-opening, I think, Ricky, is that uh, Opportunity Insights, which is um, a research arm of Harvard itself. It's fascinating how many people within the institution are throwing stones at their institution. We've talked Good to Gina Sue Gerson, yeah. who is at Harvard Law School, who's been pushing them on a lot of this stuff for a long time. But Raj Chetty and his research team, uh, you know, gold standard in a lot of you know, studies on economic mobility and what it means to go from the bottom to the top in America and obstacles for poor families in America released, he released a, and he and his team released a large study on Monday that gives us a true window into what it means to apply to elite colleges in America. And they looked at eight Ivy League universities as well as Stanford, Duke, MIT, and the University of Chicago. And they got mm -hmm. unprecedented access to data from 1999 to 2015. And they had a few eye-opening conclusions, and let's go through a few of them at a time. So one thing they found is that uh, although legacy students tend to actually be a little bit more qualified than I think people give them credit for. So I think basically what Ch Chetty was saying is like, yes, like legacy students actually happen. They're, they're not the Jared Kushner caricature uh, or, you know, to make it bipartisan, the Hunter Biden caricature of like, the child of the right person who might not be the smartest person in the world getting in. Actually, like a lot of these people have really elite credentials, but mm -hmm. even after accounting for those things, for applicants with the same SAT and ACT score, children from families in the top 1% were 34% more likely to be admitted than the average applicant. Uh, and those from the top 1.1% were more than twice as likely to get in. Students in the richest 1% of families made up one-sixth of students at elite colleges. So let me say that again. One yeah. percent, one-sixth of students at elite colleges. And one thing about this data that's super interesting to me is that it's like it it's not a straight correlation line of like the richer you are, the more you're at, you more you have an advantage of getting in. So because if you look at the average admissions kind of rate and you look at how people in different deciles of income uh, end up performing, if you're below the 70th percentile of family income, that actually works to your advantage. You're more likely to get in than um, the average admissions odds, which, you know, that is at least encouraging that there seems to be some sort of needs-based affirmative action if it's not formalized, but people like admissions officers are taking into account these kids' backgrounds potentially. But then if you're somewhere between like the 70th percentile and the 99th percentile, you're actually less likely to get in. So if you're rich, but not rich enough that you might be like building a building, then yep. you actually get, those are the people that are worst, worse off in the admissions odds of all people, which is, uh, Really, I mean, it makes it makes sense having come from a boarding school background. I feel like I did see that sort of shake out in the admissions of of classmates and stuff. But yeah, that's pretty shocking. You know, I, I'm fond of making fun of the the ten percent. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but I, I've always 
poked fun at the sort of Elizabeth Warren coalition of the 10 percenters who love to talk about how the 1% has it made. Mm -hmm. This is actually where they're right. Like, I want to give them credit where it seems based on this study that the middle and upper middle class families going all the way up until about the top 1% are less likely. Truly like 98th percentile. It's crazy. Are less likely to be admitted uh, than the richest or the poorest students with the same test scores. It's really fascinating. And and this is why I think this is going to change because those are very powerful political blocks of people. That is the Warren coalition. That's also the suburban families that have um, in, in large part, like in a lot of places, suburban and um, richer sort of, you know, cusping families that are big donors, have high voter turnout, are very influential. I, I tend to think that these people are going to agitate for change. Now, what that change looks like, yeah. who knows? Also worth mentioning that the response has been on the left, Ibram Kendi and a lot of these people, to get rid of standardized tests as a solution to the inequity of college admissions, et cetera. Chris Stewart raised this point recently uh, in an interview I did with him. And the argument goes that this will somehow make things more equitable. I think Chetty's findings pour cold water on this. And and to illustrate that, let's go to a clip from him, uh, from an interview he did with uh, Christiana Amanpour on PBS. And what we find is that kids from high-income families, the top 1% in particular, are much more likely to get high non-academic ratings from admissions committees. And that's coming entirely from the fact that they attend certain high schools, typically elite private high schools, very expensive schools, which tend to produce very high non-academic ratings for their students relative to public schools. So why might that be? You know, you get involved in more extracurricular activities, you have greater support from your teachers and guidance counselors. If you go to a small school where people are really able to invest a lot in developing your college application and building your profile, whereas in a public school, you know, one guidance counselor for 600 kids uh, on average, that's just not as feasible. And so that creates another big advantage for kids from high income families. We talked about this at various points when we talked about the move to get rid of standardized testing at the higher education level. And this is the key point here, which is if you get rid of standardized tests, the things that are left are even more susceptible to gaming and privilege. Like, you know, there are certain universities out there uh, that have actually banned the use of letters of recommendation, in part because they're written like almost like um, like magazine profiles of the kids. If you go to a private school versus if you go to the, the an under-resourced public school, you've got one guidance counselor responsible for 100 plus kids, right? And that that kind of inequity is even more severe than the test scoring inequity. And for a kid who's trying to get, you know, to a kid in a family trying to find a predictable avenue to an Ivy League school, like I did as a kid coming from, you know, my mom had an associate's degree, you know, nobody within, you know, within miles of where I lived got into an Ivy League school. For me, the best route, the the most predictable route is, okay, ACE the LSAT, get a high GPA, and they can't take that away from you, right? I don't care how much like they're, the guidance counselor writes the great letter of recommendation or somebody has a fencing background or a lacrosse background, et cetera, uh, they can't take away from you an objective measure. Uh, and it seems what Chetty's, Chetty's saying is, well, on all the, the non-objective measures, the privilege is even more extreme. 
it makes me think of like the varsity blues sort of thing and how all this fluffing of like the crew athletes and all the, it's all the fake extracurricular stuff. And I, I mean, even having been in that boarding school environment, like I watched how that's that environment, like is such a pressure cooker of any moment in your free time. They're filling it for you with something to go on a resume. Like even on spring breaks, they want to like ship you off to do some voluntourism thing that is like absolute BS and, um, or like 12 hours a week of athletics and like as obscure of a sport <laughs> as you can possibly get like fencing right. and squash and like these, these sports that, that will, you won't have a lot of competition applying as a, a, recruited athlete for as well. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. We should talk about sports. Let's talk about sports for a second. Look, I'm practical enough to know that we're not going to get rid of Kentucky basketball or Alabama football, but should we really be giving scholarships and preference to fencing, to lacrosse? Like how many people are showing up to these things? Volleyball, like, come on, like you can have those sports. That's great. But like a lot of these are pub- some of these are public institutions and every single one of them receives public dollars and tax exempt status. Why are we subsidizing this? What's your metric for that, though? Like, what about those specific sports is not... Honestly, if, if I had... Is it revenue? If I had my way, I don't think any any institution should re- receive tax-exempt status, by and large, to subsidize these types of sporting activities generally. I mean, okay, but what is discussion. these types of sporting activities? Meaning generally. Like, like, I don't think that a school... Any? I don't think it's in the pub... I think these are... I think the sporting... The NCAA football, basketball, even at the highest levels, these are businesses. They're not educational mm-hmm. practices, right? And they should be treated separately. They will thrive without us. We don't need any government funding, help, et cetera. Those things should be mm-hmm. totally privatized. The, I, the, my only, the reason I was pushing on that a little bit is because you run up against Title IX concerns in that case, though. If it starts becoming about revenue, then certainly women's sports are going to be the first on the chopping block. Well, my thing Probably is... Probably with, like, fencing. My thing is... Which I'm, I'm kind of fine Push with, the most controversial parts of what I'm saying aside, because I would never even try to implement any of that stuff because it would be too unpopular. But let's start with the things that nobody ever shows up for, right? On either side of the gender equation, right? How many people are going to a fencing meet or even a wrestling match? Like, these are things that, yes, have the things... But don't preference it for admissions. And MIT is a good example of this. They that's their policy. They have they have sports. They're not great sports, I imagine, but they have recruited they have recruited athletes, but they must mm-hmm. go through the exact same process as everybody else. And when you look at MIT's data, they shine compared to these other institutions in Chetty's data. Um, Chetty yeah. also made an interesting point, Ricky, about the debate and saying, look, before we even go to affirmative action for the poor, which I support. He said, let's just stop doing really bad things uh, and let's take the thumb off the scale of wealthy students. Let's go to another part of this clip from Amin Poor. A lot of the conversation that has ensued has focused on possible class-based affirmative action policies. So if we can't look directly at race, maybe we can give, give a hand to kids from lower income families. Maybe that would make sense as an alternative. What we're finding here is actually, before you even think about that, you know, thinking about, in a sense, putting a thumb on the scale for kids from lower income families, the first thing we could do is just take the thumb off the scale that we currently have in favor of kids from high income families. You know, just make it more neutral by income before thinking about giving an advantage even to kids from lower income families. That itself would have quite a significant impact on socioeconomic diversity uh, at 
at these colleges that are shaping society. I have a controversial thing to say about this, which is not a very fashionable thing because I feel like the legal framework has moved towards Asian Americans as the the cover face for people who get screwed over in this this whole system. But if you look at non-white or white students who are not athletes, legacy, recruited, extremely wealthy, that's also another group of students that gets disadvantaged. Even though white students are disproportionately overrepresented, that's because, as he's saying, these are kids that are there for the wrong reasons. And the kids that don't have the connections are actually in a very similar boat as Asian Americans are in the application process, certainly like unconnected white kids as well. That, that's been an issue as for sure. And I think that removing the thumb on the scale for wealthy students would also help middle and lower class white kids too in the in their admissions prospects. But that's something that for some reason, I feel like no one wants to touch or acknowledge at all. I do think people are going there. And I, and I think the, and certainly when I, I had a debate with Chris Stewart about this the other day where I made that point where I was talking about like a kid from Appalachia or a kid from Jackson, Mississippi, like they're, they're or even a kid in the 75th right. percentile yeah. for income, yeah. <laughs> like truly, yeah. or the 98th, because that's not rich enough for that. I, I honestly do think there are, this is why I think there, that we need to broaden out the discussion of this. And even people, you know, as left as Barack Obama have made this point that we need to be talking about class more than we need to talk about race because class gets at race. It's just, it gets at it a little differently. Like when I was having this debate on the Citizen Stewart podcast, I pointed out that Basically, the debate we have been having around affirmative action until now is really a debate out of how to take this very, very small piece of the pie and divide it up among America's elite. And even as they were, these elite colleges were preferencing certain races, they were preferencing the elite of those races, which sure, like access to the elite is really important. And like, if you look at the data and Chatty talks about this data, like the people who go to that, that highly selective group that he looked at are more likely to be Fortune 500 CEOs by large margins, more likely to be senators, more likely to be the top 0.1% of earners. And having like a racially diverse mix of those people, in my opinion, is a, is a very good thing for society, I guess. But it's not, it's, it's such a small part of the discussion compared to, well, what's happening to the, what, let's, let's also broaden it out to economically diverse um, members of society. Can, the, can you go from the bottom 25% to the top? one percent and can can we have economic diversity within races like the kids that i was serving as a school principal in north nashville can they access harvard and like the debate we've been having right now excluded those kids and all these people self-professed liberals were blind to the fact that we were just talking about the richest of the rich and i think hopefully this new debate around legacy and affirmative action for lower income folks um there was one last piece of interesting information that Chetty mentioned uh, in this interview with Amapur and that's that's tucked into his study, which is that uh, these legacy kids, like one could argue that, hey, we need these legacy kids because look, like they go on, they're, you know, they have, they're, they're imminently qualified and they go on and they do great things too. Like if you're the, Raj Chetty's kid is going to probably be really good at data and math and could be like a, pathbreaker in in the field just like uh you know they so then let them get in without their parents names then. yeah or it's it's like the steph curry argument right steph curry his dad was del curry 
and Steph Curry is better than Del Curry and Del Curry was an NBA player. And often, yeah. often like children of accomplished people are even more accomplished than accomplished people. But Shetty's data actually suggests otherwise. Here's him on Amipur again. But actually, Hari, you know, with these data, we're able to follow hundreds of thousands of kids over time and look at how they ended up doing 10 years after college. And what we're finding is that there's actually no evidence whatsoever that the kids who are getting these admissions advantages, the legacy students, the ones with the high non-academic ratings, the recruited athletes, have any better outcomes. In fact, they actually have somewhat worse outcomes than the kids who don't have those advantages, which in my view makes it quite a bit harder to justify why we'd have those preferences. Well, essentially what he's saying is that it's more Kendall Roy than it is Steph Curry here. Like it's a lot of these kids of of the super, uh, like the, the alumni or, you know, of rich families, of faculty are underperforming the kids who don't have those advantages. So like objectively, they're not the kind of people that should be preferenced in the process. Okay, one final story, and then I'll let us put this one to rest. But so since you've known me, I got into Columbia and I did not end up going in the end. Um, I got rejected when I was in high school the first time I applied. Oh, I didn't know you decided to fully walk away from Columbia. I might do one class at some point, but I don't know. I I have the deposit down, but I'm planning to walk or walk away from it. I'm not planning to do that. But I very much had a chip on my shoulder as a high performing kid coming out of my my high school. Who I I didn't I don't feel that I got really a an adequate admissions result from some schools. That I I mean I do think that I didn't have a leg up in in a lot of the ways that we're talking about um, in this segment. And then I got into Columbia and, you know, before my, my dad didn't go to college and he was very like, this is so unfair, all these legacy kids and all these kids with these last names in your classes who are getting in and you're not. And then as soon as I got into Columbia, he completely <laughs> changed his position on legacy. And he's like, well, you know, it's it's nice for like, you know, like the the brand legacy and stuff. And I'm like, is this because there's a schlot in the Ivy League now that we're, we're going <laughs> to know it is ironic. 180, completely 180? Sorry, Dad. Throwing him. You and I are talking about this as two people who are the first in our families to get into an Ivy League institution, and so we are actually be be the people who lose from this. I hadn't really thought about that. Oh, I I would absolutely if I had a kid that could not justify getting into Columbia on their own without their grades, I would not allow them to apply. That would just be my policy, straight up. I would not respect my kid if that's what they needed to get in. Honestly, I really would. I agree. Like I wouldn't. Like I would want my kid to go, like I went to SUNY Binghamton to get to Yale and I fought my way through that. And it's like, if my kid, like the best they could do is the water's edge for them is SUNY Binghamton. Like Binghamton was a great institution and it was the right fit for me at the right time. And I think like, this is what we're parents. And we do a lot on Sweat the Technique podcast about this, about parenting. And I think parents do a disservice to their kids it's when they push them into environments that they're not ready for. It's like in 100%. football, when these teams trot out the rookie quarterback who hasn't been adequately prepared and they get demolished and their confidence gets screwed and all that. If I had gone from my academic situation where I was kind of a screw up in high school to Yale undergrad, I would have been a mess. I wouldn't have had the writing ability. I wouldn't have been capable. I didn't have the study habits to do well. I needed that extra four years to prepare myself for a better institution. And even then, it was a bit of a stretch. Well, the Schlotts will be having an aristocratic legacy at Columbia now, according to my father. So I, I highly doubt that that practice will be left <laughs> by that point. But um, they certainly, I think Columbia is one of the people that don't even use SAT scores, ACT anymore, or at least they scrapped that. It was, it was optional when I applied and I sent mine in. 
just imagine how subjective this is now. Like the letters of recommendation, the house you built in Ghana. These these institutions are just wrecking their own credibility in every single way, shape, and form right now, whether it's like their admissions criteria or the fact that kids like Columbia has the number one default rate of any master's program in their film school and the the student loan thing. Like this is higher education has just totally lost the whole plot. And I'm glad that it's all coming out. It is worth mentioning there are institutions that have bucked this trend and there will be more. We talked about Wesleyan moving off yeah. of this. University of California schools forbid given preferences to legacies or donors. UCLA doesn't even consider letters of recommendation. Good for them. MIT is an exception among the elite schools. Uh, it has no preference for rich kids. And as I mentioned, it does recruit athletes, but doesn't give them any preference and doesn't uh, and makes them go through the same admissions process. Uh, it's probably why we don't hear about MIT making any run in the NCAA tournament, but who cares? Like MIT is never going to be known for its athletics. It's known because it produces kids who could do math really well. And honestly, like it, intuitively, as somebody who's read a lot of re- resumes in my life, the and hired people, MIT kids are always impressive for the very thing that they advertise. Whereas if you read Yale and Harvard resumes, I used to joke that like, I would take a kid at a strong state school over a Yale and a Harvard kid any day. Oh, not, yeah. be- not because of anything against those kids, but because the degree doesn't tell you a whole lot about the kid. Whereas if a totally. kid graduates from University of Texas at Austin or UC Berkeley or something, that often tells you a whole lot about that kid because the processes are more fair and transparent. Absolutely. So, Ricky, earlier in the week, you were pushing to do the UFO hearings. And I I have to be honest, I was a bit skeptical that anything meaningful would happen in these hearings. But honestly, from from what I can tell, there were some weird back and forths and some uh, eye-opening testimony from from some of these experts and so-called whistleblowers here. What, What happened here? Yeah, this is the first time in over 55 years that we've had any sort of public hearing on this issue. And this is a congressional hearing on UFOs done by the House Oversight Committee on National Security. So they have three witnesses that have been brought here under oath, which is really significant. Um, and one of them, the the guy who I think most people's eyes were on is David Grush, who spent 14 years as an intelligence officer in the Air Force. He's been very public about um, his concerns over uh, obstructionist policies in the government and the fact that there he believes that there's a much bigger UFO, which, by the way, I'm not going to do the UAP thing. I don't understand that. It's UFO. <laughs> I don't know why we need to change every name. But he, he says that there is quite a lot that's being hidden that he has secondhand knowledge from firsthand sources. And then also beside him are two uh, former fighter pilots that both had uh, firsthand experiences with, with UFOs, including the guy who filmed the infamous Tic Tac video of the little thing kind of jumping around that I think is probably the most famous clip of a UFO. Um, But let's first hear from David Grush about what he alleges is happening in the government. At the time, due to my extensive executive level intelligence support duties, I was cleared to literally all uh, relevant compartments and in a position of extreme trust, both in my military and civilian capacities. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. So I think so far that, you know, it seems like, all right, like, well, if there's that's not all right. If they're if they're literally picking up pieces of actual UFOs and stuff and storing them, I think that's pretty significant if true. 
Okay, so here here's the kind of presumption I go in on this, right? Which is that there are foreign adversaries who have a lot of reasons to enter our airspace. Uh, there are there's more civilian technology than ever uh, in the air and drones, etc. Um, there's also uh, subjectivity, right? So there are people who, you know, think they see something or don't, or may overinterpret something. Like if you ever talk to your friends about ghost stories, for example, there's just tons of these things. And so I go in thinking that, especially on the first one, the government does have some reason to be a bit secretive about some of the things that it finds in part, because if they're like collecting, if they're seeing things in our sp- airspace that they're not sure what it is, their probably first thought is, okay, maybe it's China, maybe it's Russia. Uh, and they would have some reason not to be totally forthcoming about that kind of stuff. So I, I go in with a sort of a, a tilt of, understanding as to why the government would be secretive about some of this stuff. I mean, if if the allegations are as if this guy is not lying and this is true, um, let's hear about the fact that he's claiming that that they've recovered the captains of whatever is flying around. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. (laughs) Um, If you believe we have crashed craft uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Non-human could be literally like a giraffe. Yeah. It could be non-human biological remain could be a plant. Yeah, but these are, I mean, so I think the only two lanes are either this guy is or three lanes. One is that he has terrible sources inside these programs that are lying to him. Two is that he's like seriously lying under oath or three, something is like really up here. I just, I, I can't figure out there's not a world in which like, there's not a world in which these are American crafts because they have places, they have airspaces where they would test things like this and not within the zone of their fighter pilots and their military. Like this is not, that would be completely sloppy. Then you have the fact that like, if it is China or Russia, this is so far beyond like what we know about the capabilities of technology and physics that I, I can't wrap my head around the fact that it's that I, but people say that, but how much do we really know about what's possible? Like, I'm not an aeronautics expert. You think that and China like or see- Russian, I mean, I don't, I think Russia is not even a consideration. I think in my world, it would only really be China if anyone, but you really think that China is so far beyond us that they are doing something with physics that we can't even comprehend. But this is what, this is where it gets to government secrecy. Like the, the U S government First of all, like there's very little objective evidence. There's a couple videos here and there, like of actual, like, hey, we have the video and there's this thing, it's moving in a way that we just can't possibly fathom physically, right? Now, uh, and by the way, like even if it's a UFO, 
UFOs don't have a separate, there, there isn't a separate law of gravity for them. There isn't a separate law of thermodynamics. The speed of sound and speed of light are still the same for that. So it's like, it's all about technology. And the US government has a vested interest in like, let's take it at the most exaggerated version of the story, which is there is some object up there that's moving in a way that our current lay understanding belies. Number one, we don't have any idea what the US government is capable of doing because by their nature, they're probably going to be very secret about it. And number two is we don't know what they know about other countries because they're also going to be secretive about that. So even in the most exaggerated version of this, I'm not quite ready to say this is aliens or even think anything close to that. I'm not either, although I think this is a consequential conversation that's being had. And I wonder how much of it might have actually been spurred on by the kind of issue of classification and obstructionist policies after COVID. I feel like there's a demand for more congressional oversight and and the fact that elected officials should be, you know, at least somewhat privy to important things like this. But I also I I can't help but think like if there are Aliens that can like change or move beyond the speed of light or whatever these allegations are that they're they're defying the laws of physics and and defying gravity and like really they're going to show up here and start like blipping on our radar and crashing and dying and and crashes and like random fields like that is hard for me to believe so I'm not a hundred percent convinced however I do think that. The, there's reason to demand more declassification. Um, Schumer introduced an amendment to the defense spending bill, which, by the way, our tax dollars are going into this research. So I think, like, I, I mean, the American people and their their democratically elected politicians should have some sort of oversight here. But this would require agencies to hand over more records on the UAP uh, stuff that they have or at the very least justify the reason why they're um they're keeping them pri- as private as they are which i think is is a positive move just in general across the board whether it's this whether it's covid whether whatever whatever obstructionist policy there is on the books i think you should we should demand that our government and federal agencies are as open as possible and have to at least justify to someone that we elect why they're not being that. So I'm in favor of it in that sense. But I am, I do have to say the aliens, if I'm on the Biden family's PR team right now, I'm just like so grateful to the aliens for showing up on the same day that Hunter's in court. <laughs> but here, it, this gets to like how people think of conspiracy theories, right? I think simultaneously, and, and I'm not this, I'm not saying this is you, but often I'm hearing from the very same people that the government is incompetent and it can't be trusted to follow through on basic things, yada, yada. Which, by the way, I kind of buy that on a lot of things. Like, I do think the government's terrible at doing a lot of different things. I've worked in government and it's often horrible at certain things. There are certain things it's great at. Um, But then we also need to believe that it's this conspiratorial beast that is like, hiding all these huge secrets uh, from the American public, like there's alien life out there. And I'm just like, well, it it would have to be really competent to hide the existence of aliens from us because these are human beings and human beings love to dish, right? Like you'd imagine if they were actually hiding the evidence of aliens that it would be more than one guy showing up and telling us about it, you know? And, and to, 
to me, this gets to what seems like the less sexy version of the story, which is there's a Scientific American article, we'll link to it in the show notes, titled Bad Data, Not Aliens, Maybe Behind the UFO Surge. And there was a NASA-chartered blue-ribbon panel of 16 independent experts from a different a number of different scientific and technical fields. They convened last year, and they've been working on a report that they're going to publish, I think, very soon. But they recently gave a public briefing and offered their initial verdict of what's going on. And essentially, they said that we just have really bad data on this kind of stuff, bad diagnostic tools, and some armchair science being applied to this, including by like lay experts and internet sleuths. And they said that many of these UAP events can be attributed to commercial aircraft, drones, research balloons, as well as weather and ion, I don't even know how to say this, ionospheric phenomenon. Um, And the chair of this group, who's a Princeton professor, said, Quote, that said, there remain events that we do not understand, but these events tend to be characterized by poor quality and limited data. The current existing data and eyewitness reports alone are insufficient to provide conclusive evidence about the nature and origin of of every UAP event. They're often uninformative due to lack of quality control and data curation. Look, I I mean, I know I'm this guy, but like the sexy story is... You know, JFK was, you know, it was a CIA conspiracy, yada, yada, yada. And the the less interesting one is that it was Lee Harvey Oswald and he was a bit of a kook who did this alone. Yeah, but then like declassify stuff like that's part of the problem, though. Why are we going to if that's the case, then why are we so obstructionist with everything? Like truly just declassify it. I'm on record on the JFK stuff thing and they should declassify it all, especially given all the time that's been going on. I think that part of the reason why they don't declassify everything as it relates to these UAPs and UFOs is, is that it's so disscattered. Like part of what this this group is saying and what, what Congress, this group, and even the experts, everybody agrees on, including the skeptics, is that there isn't a unified process for how to report and collect this stuff. It's not necessarily that the government is... And it's possible the government is stonewalling in certain instances, especially if it relates to information that they have that they think might have to do with foreign adversaries. But uh, it seems like this panel saying, Congress is saying, these experts are saying, like a, a really sensible improvement to this process is just to have a uniform way to report UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, and put that information in one place and provide a transparent mechanism to follow up on it. And you could imagine that that process would yield uh, certain, like the government would then be able to release the data. Why not just release the, fa- just why not just release it and be like, this is what we, I mean, maybe not everything, but like, this is the mess that we have. We can't even handle it. We don't really know. There's not really good firm evidence because we don't have a, a central mechanism to report it. And we'll figure it out. Like that's, that's still obstructionist to me. Like I could see a world. I do think that's where they were going. Well, I think they should just do that then. But like, I mean, or there's an, there's also the alternative that there's an issue of irresponsible spending. And maybe, I mean, this is, we're pumping our defense spending into researching this stuff. And maybe people like, maybe the agency is benefiting from that. Like, I don't know. It's either there's something to hide or there's corruption. But I do think like the explanation the government's giving, I do think makes some sense to me, which is in certain cases you're saying like they're they're explicitly saying that this guy is is there that they have no evidence that what this guy is saying is true. They've said that on a number of different things that they're saying is that they just which don't think crushed? it's true. Yeah. And there was like an explicit I think the DOD came out and said, at least as it relates to some of his testimony, that 
that is just not straight up not true. Now, on certain counts, it talk as it relates to misappropriation of funds or whatever. I'm just like, and I think that's what they were pushing back on. I don't know if it's misappropriation of funds for the DOD to be spending money on any of this stuff because people, any any object in our airspace seems to be the kind of thing the DOD would have wide latitude to spend their money to investigate. Like they're not on that much of a tight rein from Congress. Like there's tons of discretionary spending they can use. So then how do you justify that and say, okay, sure, that's true then. So then how do you justify the fact that they have actually no like reporting mechanism or their their stuff is so that's like, that's the- I, I predict that this is going to be fixed imminently like i think that this is the thing that they're just going to come out and say like because this is like you we we started this segment by saying this is the first time congress has really taken this seriously and and this is sort of the law of power in dc is like you know the dod will follow congress it'll set this system up it won't satisfy everybody and people will still have their their arguments to make and those who knows those arguments could be valid to improve the system now but Ricky there is one thing I did want to bring to your attention though I, I poured a lot of cold water on this alien question UFO etc I still you know keep an open mind obviously like I, I don't understand enough about space and you know intelligent life to say whether this stuff exists or not but I'm just not convinced right now there have been some recent things that have happened though in civilian life that have turned my head, especially this incident that happened on an airplane. And I'm going to show you this video. I've seen this. Oh, you've seen this. Okay. So I'm going to play this for our audience. And I think this is fascinating. Uh, This is a woman who's on an airplane who's basically freaking out over a passenger next to her who she says is not real. I'm telling you, I'm getting the off. And there's a reason why I'm getting the off and everyone can either believe it or they cannot I don't give two f**ks, but I am telling you right now, that mother that mother back there is not real. And you can sit on this plane and you can die with them or not. I'm not going to. So is your theory that it's yeah. an alien? Is that what the... So I think this is interesting. Okay. I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is this has gotten a lot of attention, including in some really credible podcasts that I listen to, like where people are really examining this. Now, the part of this video that not enough people talk about, because this is a good example of how like internet culture works, is there's actually a verifiable claim that she makes in the middle of all of this, which is you people could stay here and die with that motherfucker on board, right? Now, that plane took off and landed. And those people are fine. And so this is what I'm getting at is like people love this stuff. They absolutely love it. But she made a claim, which is like, hey, like this guy is not real and you could stay here and die with this person. Now, if she had just said he's not real, it would be a fascinating discussion to be like, well, what what is it that she saw in this guy? Wait, I'm so confused. What are you talking about? She, go, if you go back to yeah, the clip, but where she is says, the, you guys can. But what does this have to do with aliens? <laughs> Okay, well, what does not real mean? Like, that's what people are saying is like, is this like a men in black situation, you know? And it's like, the minute people start making verifiable claims, these things always break down, right? Which is like, in this case, like, it's, it's you know, you could say maybe she's saying it's AI or something, but the fact that she's saying it's going to bring down the airplane makes you, I don't know. Like aliens is like the most common interpretation of this incident. Wait, people think it's aliens? I think it's just someone having a paranoid break. 
I think. Well, okay. Well, that's, that's what theory. I think is happening. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's obviously my theory too. But the, the internet chatter around this is like, she's a hero to a lot of people on the internet. Being like, and this made it all the way to the Bill Simmons podcast on The Ringer, which is like, you know, number three podcast in the world, where Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman are taking seriously this woman's claim that she's sitting next to an alien. And I'm like, well, and then they talked about ghosts and all this kind of stuff. And I love Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman. But I, and I know that they were having a bit of fun with it. But, but this gets at my point is like, like so much of this stuff including the very videos of people in space. Like the minute there's something that could be falsified, it's falsified every time. And so like, yes, it's easy to make speculation and be like, oh, like I, you know, there are crop circles or yada, yada, yada. But like the minute anybody makes a claim that is predictive in any way, it always breaks down. And that's where I'm like, well, I'm just not convinced that there are aliens out there yet. That's my lesson from this video. I'm not either. But one final theory for me is I think it's more likely if there is something like floating around that's defying the laws of gravity and stuff, I think it's more likely human time travelers than aliens because that would make more sense to me. Like why why would aliens, if aliens are from other planets and can and are have managed to get all the way here, they wouldn't be floating around it like this and being so obvious and Flipping on her radar and crashing into stuff. So I think it's more likely that there's be true humans from, they would humans the, from the future. I don't know. Well, there's they would have the same advantages. Like they, they would still be able to conceal. Know, you don't know how far into the future it is. I don't know. I think I think that's more likely. They'd have a more they'd have more of a vested interest in showing up here and like tinkering with stuff and trying to like fix us from destroying ourselves or something. So that's my theory. I think it's more likely time travelers. But the, the same theory applies. Like if if you have the technology to get here, whether you're a alien life or you're a human from the future, in both cases you'd have to have more advanced technology that we have. And in both cases, people are saying, "Well, if you have that more advanced technology, then how would we even see you?" I don't know. But my my big piece here, and I always have to mention this every time we talk about aliens, is people treat this like it's a bad thing. But I'm I, I'm oh not God. convinced that not alien life wouldn't be good for us <laughs> because we're. It's not like we're handling things really well right now. And I honestly think if, if they're smart enough to get here, maybe they're smart enough to help us resolve our differences and no, uh, thanks. manage our planet I'll send them back better. home. Thank you for the offer. You also imagine they'd have a power source for their, for their technology that allows them to, to draw a lot of energy from somewhere uh, that maybe isn't going to destroy the planet. I'd be excited about that too. But okay. I'd rather be tri- time travelers. I think it's future people. I would be excited to know that we lasted long enough as a as a race uh, and as a species to be able to make such technology. That would be great news. Let's talk about this poll. So Gallup has been asking American parents uh, the same question since 1999. Are you satisfied with your oldest child's education? Um, and basically every year, parents have said about two-thirds to 80% have said yes. Uh the most recent poll, uh, 80% of parents said they were somewhat or completely satisfied with their child's school. This is actually a bit higher than in recent years. And Matt Barnum over at Chalkbeat wrote up about all this, uh, basically saying that, and this is uh, a quote from Andy Smerick uh, from the Manhattan Institute, who's uh, quoted in this article, quote, contrary to elite or policy wonk opinion, which often is critical of schools, 
there have been years and years worth of data saying that families in general like their public schools. Ricky, one of the biggest findings here is that there's actually a significant gap between people who have kids in schools who tend to be very happy with their options or happy, somewhat happy, and people who don't have parents, uh, kids in the schools who tend to be more critical of the system. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. So parents, like during the pandemic, went down in their satisfaction just slightly, but only to like 2018 levels. So really the pandemic didn't meaningfully change the satisfaction levels of parents because um, it recovered all the way back up to, to 80% right where it was basically. Whereas the public is far lower at 42% satisfaction. Um, but also the drop off from the pandemic is more sustained for people who do not have kids in school. I think part of this could be like, yeah, schools can suck, but you can also have like really wonderful teachers and, and really like the, the human aspect of the school that you interact with makes you satisfied, but the system itself sucks. And I, I just, I mean, it's surprising to me given how dismal all of our metrics are in terms of testing and stuff that people aren't more frustrated with the system. I mean, it's pretty inexcusable, but I think the difference must just come down to the fact that like, of course, most kids will have at least one great teacher that'll make an impact on their life forever and will come home from school and tell their parents about that and that will make their parents satisfied or maybe the kids just enjoy going. But like the general public and I think society at large is coming to terms with the fact, especially post-pandemic, that given how much money we pump into the school system, given how many resources we have in this country that we're we're really, frankly, mediocre at best in our performance. And I think that society is right to be frustrated with that. But parents probably have a, a much more personal and intimate and not, and I don't mean this in like a condescending way at all, but like I'm, I'm perhaps a more myopic view of the school system than than the entire system as a whole and how their their kids are kind of a, a cog in a failing system. You know, I, it's it's easy to dismiss this as as an outlier, as some outlets have done, but there's so many polls that confirm the same thing. So, a New York Times poll found that 77% were satisfied, um, focusing on just parents within school districts. Education Next reported 85% were at least somewhat satisfied. Ed Choice found 84%, and some of these Ed Choice, Education Next, some of these are groups that uh, are reform-ish who tend to and reform people like me tend to grab onto dissatisfaction data because it justifies radical change. And I think this this data at least like and I and I've been in this debate for a long time with people who, you know, for instance, when I wrote um months ago about how I thought that this coming election, a presidential election was going to be an education election, the most common critique of that piece was that we Parents actually don't vote on education issues because they largely aren't that upset about their educational options. They're not very populist about it. And this data would seem to suggest that. Uh, Barnum also does mention some data, though, that I think uh, underscores why I continue to think education is a big issue in elections. Uh, putting aside the parents, uh, the, the voters who don't have kids in schools who claim to have strong feelings about schools because I doubt those people are really going to vote on school issues. Uh, they're probably finding something more tangible in their lives to vote on. But uh, there has been a sizable movement uh, away from traditional public schools. So um, from 2019 to 2021, uh, attendance in traditional public schools dropped by nearly 3% from 50.8 million to 49.4 million. 
And that's a huge drop if you think about just a short period of time. Obviously, if more years were like that than not, uh, within a decade or two, you'd see a full-on crisis within the traditional public school system. You're already seeing fiscal uh pressure on traditional school systems. Now, my theory, and and Barnum touches on this very briefly, is that uh, that small percentage of people who are leaving the public school system and the percentage of people who are dissatisfied are driving a lot of the activity around our politics, whether it's Moms for Liberty or uh, you know more centrist or le- left-leaning groups like the parent union. Like the there is a group of dissatisfied parents who are moving with their feet in larger numbers than they were before. And in, in an environment where our elections are decided, sometimes a few hundred, a few thousand votes, including our presidential elections, which are decided in some cases within a few thousand or tens or hundreds of thousands, this is a group that needs to be taken seriously, even if they aren't representative of the whole. Yeah. And I also think that the question itself is a little subjective because just because something you're satisfied with something doesn't mean that you don't want it to improve or you don't have a feeling about how it should change or who should be in charge of it. Like satisfaction isn't, doesn't mean that you're exuberant about it and you think it's perfect and it doesn't matter to you or, or, or even that like some people could be satisfied and want to vote in order to, to maintain what they, they feel is satisfactory to them and, or whoever, whatever representative will continue something that they like in their school district. So I think that, I mean, I don't think saying that you're satisfied means that this isn't a voter issue for you. This isn't an important issue that you will take with you to the ballots. So I would say it's interesting data. I'm definitely surprised by how high it is. I'm surprised that there wasn't any meaningful sustained drop off post pandemic. But the more that I think about it, the more that I, I mean, I don't think that means that it's not a consequential issue at all, period. Yeah, and there's even it was a, the Ed Choice survey had some even more startling results. So it found that 57% of parents said their local district was moving in the right direction, which is 10 percentage points higher than in January 2020 before the pandemic. But among non-parents, only 29% said the local schools were on a positive trajectory, which is just an interesting like. I almost think that that's a great long form piece. Is like interviewing these people with no kids in the system uh, and asking them. What is it that you're picking up on that tells you that schools are heading in the wrong direction? Because I'm sympathetic. Like I, if, if you listen to this podcast, you know, like I kind of am that person, right? I'm the person who absent reading polls like this would say the system is generally heading in the wrong direction. Uh, and so it is, it is something that needs to be taken seriously by reformers is like, look, if your argument and, I, and this, this, this was a little bit, of, this crept into my conversation with Corey D'Angelo a little bit. It's like, if, if your argument is that the system is in crisis, then you got to do more work to make that point, uh, especially for the majority of parents. I continue to believe that the, that the people on the lowest income scale um, are dealing, are probably like a sizable percentage of that disaffected group. And certainly when it comes to their results, they have a lot of reasons to feel like they're not being served well. But that has to be paired with the experience of the majority of parents who are in the system right now. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. Please remember to send us a five-star review. Send us some voicemails, 321-200-0570. And we will be back here on Tuesday. 